the better nutritional status, the weaker the virus. If you do that, then you suddenly turn down the volume. Welcome to the Your Longevity Blueprint Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Stephanie Gray. My number one goal with the show is to help you discover your personalized plan to build your dream health and live a longer, happier, truly healthier life. You're about to hear from Dr. Kasha Kynes, and today she's going to talk about one of the most common missed infections, the Epstein-Barr virus, how it may be affecting your health, and of course, what you can do about it. Let's get to it. Welcome to another episode of the Your Longevity Blueprint Podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. Kaja Kynes, who is the CEO and founder of the Global Epstein-Barr Virus Institute, a global leader in recovery therapy for chronic Epstein-Barr virus, an Amazon bestselling author of The Epstein-Barr Virus Solution, a wellness expert, and a highly respected doctor in clinical nutrition. She's a graduate of Bastyr University, the Harvard of Natural Medicine, and its world-acclaimed graduate nutrition program. She was also in the first ever cohort of doctorates in functional clinical nutrition from Maryland University of Integrative Health. Since 2005, Dr. Kynes has built an international reputation as a clinical functional nutritionist, from being sought after by Johns Hopkins University to clients globally to her groundbreaking book about Epstein-Barr virus. Dr. Kynes has developed a proprietary evidence-based methodology and approach to Epstein-Barr virus recovery, which is now available to anyone in her highly successful Epstein-Barr virus recovery program. She also provides professional clinical training to other practitioners in her clinical Epstein-Barr virus training and certification program and Epstein-Barr virus practitioner workshop. Dr. Kynes is a passionate advocate for debunking common misinformation about Epstein-Barr virus in the medical community and lectures on this topic extensively. She's on a mission to bring her Epstein-Barr virus knowledge and solution to the world globally so that no one needs to suffer needlessly from the misunderstood virus and its complications. Welcome to the show, Dr. Kynes. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Tell me your story. So how did you become the Epstein-Barr virus queen? I'm just a messenger, basically. (laughs) And when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Basically, that's what happened. I had a very close friend who died of multiple sclerosis in Poland. While I was building my life here, she was still in Poland and I was not able to help her, even though at a certain point I became a nutritionist and, you know, I thought I could. That, I think, fired me up because I always asked the question why I couldn't help her, what happened. And at a certain point, in my desperation, I actually asked a medical intuitive about what happened, why, you know, she just ended up with a mess out of the blue. And EBV was mentioned. And then a couple of my patients at the same time asked me to give them an educated opinion on the book, Medical Medium. It was a hot book at that time. I didn't have time to read, but I was going to a medical conference. So I bought the book, uh, read it on the plane. (laughs) You know how it is. (laughs) I have nowhere to go. I I can't read on the plane. And I almost fell off my chair on the plane because I was reading stories of the patients I couldn't help. Basically, you know, as you go deeper into functional medicine or functional nutrition practice, you work more and more with certain presentations. And uh, at certain point, you start hitting the wall. You get, as you know, you get more and more complicated cases. You get demoralized. You start to feel like you're an imposter. Uh, you start doubting yourself. You always think about people you couldn't help instead of all those that you could. And I knew there was something that was in the way and I didn't know what it was. And unfortunately, nobody was teaching about EVV. There was nothing. So that book was 
interesting because after that conference, I went back home and I started to look at medical literature about testing. And so that I just really, there was a lot of, there was a lot of medical literature and, and, and a, a lot, I learned a lot about testing that doctors still don't know for some reason, but it's all in there. So then I started to ask to test and then we started to find it. Just really the student is ready, the teachers appeared. I was extremely lucky, extremely lucky. Even having Dr. Vasquez in my doctoral program, training in virology, that doesn't happen. You don't get that training anywhere. Institute for Functional Medicine doesn't provide that. You know, conferences does, don't provide that. There was a lecture on EBV at one of the conferences I actually attended by Institute for Functional Medicine. And the practitioner that had that lecture had a standing ovation, but he didn't quite have the protocols. He was still trying to figure it out. He had some success and so on. There, there wasn't much. So I had to rely on medical literature. And then I, I had to decide medical medium was becoming really a hit. And, you know, there, there were millions of fans and so, so forth. So there's an extreme of the spectrum. And for those listening that are not familiar with it, this is a, a man who is guided by a spirit of compassion. His books are written by the spirit of compassion. Not everybody believes in that. On the other spectrum is medical culture and medical community that is completely on the opposite spectrum, following literature, but they're not following the literature because they're not updated. They don't know what the literature says. And in the middle is millions of people that don't belong to either, but need the solutions. So basically, I felt my job was to bridge the gap. And basically on that plane, I thought the, the claims are huge in the book. But what if I go into medical literature? What, what can I verify? What can I actually find? What can I prove? Are any claims actually valid? So basically my job was, I just jumped into medical literature and I never stopped. And I, I was going and going and going and going to the point where at a certain point I stopped looking. And oftentimes, even today, uh, when people have some random medical conditions that I'm not familiar with, I'll do medical literature search and I'll find connections. <laughs> it's like, oh, what? at a certain time I stopped doing research for the book. It's like, I have to stop. I remember I was ready to, to get it published. And then I said, wait, wait a second. You know, I've, I've, I've worked with gut issues all these years. Well, what about IBD, which is Crohn's and ulcerative colitis? No, 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 can't be. I've, I've never seen any connection. No, that could not possibly be. But I said, well, why don't I just look? And there it was. There were a couple of consistent studies uh, claiming that up to 60% of either of those could be triggered by the virus initially. So I almost fell off that chair again. It's like, where does that end? Yeah, so basically, you know, I had a responsibility to do something about it. I was doing a lot of that work, groundwork, reading, but then I started to apply it. And then I started to piece together protocols and they worked. And so then people started telling me I have to write a book. I was the last person to write a book. <laughs> and, and you did it. I don't it's have a, a really, life. I have so much work. It's a really big book here. Yeah. For the listeners. It's a big book and it, yes. it, it wrote itself. I don't know how. I, I still don't know how I did it. I have no idea how I wrote this book. It sounds like for the listeners, because I've read the Medical Medium book as well. It's been a long time. But if I remember right, he pretty much claims that viruses cause a lot of everything. <laughs> I mean, just a lot of things. A lot of everything. And so it sounds, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
So it sounds like you questioned that and you thought, okay, I want to look into this. And you looked into the medical literature and you kept finding a connection. I think that's what you're saying between Epstein-Barr virus and lots of chronic diseases. And so then you felt called. (laughs) Yes, called to figure out some protocols and and treat patients. So I want to get into what Epstein-Barr virus is, but I'll first mention in chapter eight of my book, Your Longevity Blueprint, I compare the protective roof of the home to the immune system within the body, right? You want to have a strong protective immune system to keep invaders out, just like you want to have a strong roof over your head at home. So in this chapter, I bring up chronic infections like Lyme disease. We talk, I talk about chronic viruses and even mold. And for the listeners, I do have some upcoming guests who are going to dive deep into Lyme and mold, but today is all about Epstein-Barr virus. So, Dr. Kynes, can you define what Epstein-Barr virus is? And then we'll kind of get into chronic Epstein-Barr virus. It's a herpes virus. It's been on this planet for a couple of millions of years, basically. And for some odd reason, right now, it's really aggressive and it impacts people's lives. And maybe toxicity in the environment and spiritual, emotional toxicity and stress, maybe they have something to do with this. It's, it's complicated, but... Yeah, and nutritional nutritional status that is dropping in human body yep. uh, also has something to do with it, yeah. So it's kind of known as a kissing disease, right? Like you think mono, Epstein-Barr virus causes, right, mono, <laughs> which you think of in, you know, rundown high schoolers or college students or whatnot. That's probably all the listeners know about this virus. They've heard of it, but they just don't know much about it. Why is chronic Epstein-Barr virus or EBV, we'll keep saying EBV through this podcast, so why is chronic EBV the elephant in the room? Well, so people have mono and typically the doctor will say six weeks, you'll be out of it. You just go to bed, sleep, get hydrated, sleep more, rest, nothing to do. There's no solution. There's no, you know, cure. A percentage of people, like you said, if they don't have a strong foundation in their immune system, a percentage of people do not go back to the baseline. So after those six weeks, nothing really changes back to normal. So suddenly they are more fatigued. They can't pick up. And so there is a concept in medical literature called chronic mononucleosis syndrome. And if you compare symptoms and presentations, it's very close to chronic fatigue syndrome. So with chronic fatigue syndrome, first thing to exclude is the virus. Sure. Because the virus, I would say the weak link is where the virus will go. The virus will travel through the blood and look for residents. It's like looking for a condo. And it could be a spleen. It depends on the age. You know, spleen is, is frequent for younger, for kids, for boys, for younger women, girls. Uh, it can be the liver. If it's the liver, you can develop uh, autoimmune hepatitis. If it's the thyroid tissue, then you can develop Hashimoto's or Graves or both, just not at the same time. If it's, um, you know, liver, spleen, connective tissue, vagus nerve, different, you know, it has to go somewhere. And so just like you talk about the house, I often teach my students, we're building a a brick house, really solid house. Uh, We have to start with foundations. This is not how houses are built in the States, unfortunately, which is uh, an invitation to mold, by the way, but that's a different story. (laughs) Where are you from? Where are you from again? You said Poland is where you, is that where you were born? Yes, I'm, I'm from Poland and that's how we built with bricks. Yeah. But now you're in California, or where are you right now? Washington State, okay. 
San Juan Island, yeah. Okay. Back to EVV. So, so yes, it can ascend, sounds like it's looking for residents anywhere. And maybe that's why it's it's really underappreciated and many doctors miss it. I, I have to ask, the listeners probably think, well, doesn't 90% of the population have this virus? Doesn't everybody carry it? So it can't be that bad. Well, if I'm speaking appropriately, the problem is when this virus that maybe you did have in high school or whatnot, right, can become reactivated. Yes. So how do we know if the virus becomes reactivated? It's a very good question. If your immune system does what it needs to do, and if you have all the supplies, so all the nutrients that you're supposed to have, the virus doesn't really, cannot really operate if you have high antioxidant diet, let's say. The virus thrives on molds, thrives on Wi-Fi technology, thrives on low nutritional status, junk food. Like literature is very clear. This direction, like if your nutritional status drops, the virus becomes more virulent, more aggressive. Let's say if you have one meal of junk food, that increases your NF-kappa-B, which drives the virus. One meal, one drinking meal, it was, there was a study, it was two hours, 150% increase. And during those two hours, if you have more NF-kappa-B, that will drive more reactivation of the virus. Just as simple as that, diet is paramount. And we have a lot of toxic load in our environment and to- some specific toxins reactivate the virus like cigarette smoke or dioxins from the fireworks or burning forest or burning fire. Burning fire, that's dioxin. Fuel burning, depending on what kind, produces dioxin as well. So, you know, we talk about mono in college, mono in high school, but what people don't realize is that astronauts in space are given antiviral medications prophylactically or have it just in case because they have a higher likelihood of developing reactivation of the virus. <laughs> now, why is that? Why, why is that? I think it's the physiological changes when you are in space. Everything is disrupted, circadian rhythm, gravity, food is different. And so it's stressful. You know, different types of stresses, not just physical, but there's imagine. And so they are more susceptible. Stress is number one reactivating factor. Come to think of it in literature as well as in practice. I mean, it, it really is. That is what will throw people on their backs with EBV stress. And just drive this virus up. I want to maybe conclude the podcast with things we can do to reduce the virus, the chance of the virus reactivating, things like uh, reducing stress. But maybe let's go back for a moment first to a little bit of what you were saying. I want to talk about usual and unusual presentations of EBV. So you mentioned some autoimmune diseases, right? It sounds like you think your friend could have had, who who passed away of MS, unfortunately, could have had this virus, and we, we don't know, right? So you mentioned connective tissue issues. So I, I'm assuming autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, MS, you said Hashimoto's, you mentioned a little bit of um, inflammatory bowel disease. What are other, again, kind of usual and unusual presentations? You mentioned chronic fatigue as well, but I'll, I'll give you the reins on that. Like when someone comes into your office, maybe you're thinking everybody has this, but like what symptoms are going to flag you to want to check for chronic EBV? Number one, uh, and this is what literature says, if you have chronic illness, if you have a patient with chronic illness and they don't respond to therapy, you should, that's what literature says, you should test for EBV, chronic EBV and exclude it, number one. Number two, if there is a so-called idiopathic condition, idiopathic means there's no explanation for it. You should exclude chronic EBV, that's literature. 
Okay. Okay. And then practically when you have patients and you struggle with them and uh, it's not for the lack of trying. Those complex cases. <laughs> Those complex cases when you have, you know, I've been there. We did everything right. And I remember some cases like, oh my gosh, I remember that woman did have a lab report on EBV, but I didn't even know what it was. But this, these are patients that have been through the ringer, that have seen 10, 50 doctors. You know, these are the people that are seeking functional medicine practitioners and we can help them. Sometimes we can. But sometimes we can take them to another step, but we can't move the needle all the way. There's something there and we were just not hitting it. That would be the population. Yeah, I well said. You just have my mind spinning here. What about cancer? I've heard, I think in your book, I have not read the entire book, but I, I believe this is something about oncogenic potential. So can the virus also lead to certain cancers? Correct. So it is oncogenic. If you think about it, traditionally B cells, B as in boy, B cells are the immune cells that are infected. And so they lose the ability to self-terminate. They lose the ability to send an SOS message to other cells to come and kill them because they're infected. But they're, they clone in perpetuality. Like they are a little bit like cancer cells. They never die. They just lose that ability. And so the cloning is, the cloning of these cells is how the EBD actually sustains itself between reactivations. And so these B cells can become oncogenic because they are like cancer cells, they don't die. And so there's different mechanisms in which the, the virus can create cancer. Is it more lymphomas? Yeah, there are specific, yeah. yes, lymphomas, Hodgkin's and so on and so forth, but they're, they're looking more into more common types of cancer like breast cancer. And they're noticing that the tumor is, seems to be more aggressive in the breast tissue where they do find EBV in there as well colorectal cancer, there are some associations as well. Like with the cancer research, some researchers say there is a strong connection with EBV. Some researchers say, well, some studies are not showing it. Other researchers say, well, some of those studies are weak. That's why they're not showing. Definitely there's something there. So these are newer studies. Sure. So there's quite a lot of types of cancer, 10% of stomach cancer, gastric cancer is most likely 10 or more is caused by the virus. Now, who knew? I mean, I didn't know. So knowing this virus is very prevalent, right? And obviously we wanna keep our immune systems, that protective roof strong, so the virus cannot wage war on us, right? But knowing that it's prevalent, I wanna talk about testing because I think that's where, even with well-trained functional medicine practitioners, that's where there is just a, a confusion. I think a lot of practitioners don't know exactly how to test, how to interpret the labs, right? If you have an IgG um, antibody to the virus that says you have had exposure, but it doesn't necessarily say that it, the virus has been reactivated. So tell me why testing Not is correct. Okay, well, then we're going to talk about it. So tell me why testing is typically done all wrong and why interpretation of labs is worse. Let's spend some time here. We actually, and I can direct because it's the best, a picture is worth a million words, you know? There is a fabulous color coded graph. My book is not color coded, unfortunately, because it was too expensive. But um, yeah. But we put this graph in color on my website, ebvhelp.com. So if you go to that website and click on lab page, it's all explained there. You can see colors and then it sticks. Like then you, you can relate to it. It's kind of hard to think of it when you don't see that image. The common panel that the doctor will, will order has three antibodies. And the key antibodies, uh, early antigen is typically missing. 
And even when patients are already trained or read the book or are aware of it and they request the fourth one to be added, oftentimes it's just not added. If you just test the three common antibodies, you will not actually understand the status. The, the only IgM in the panel is VCA IgM, but that only seems to flag when it's the initial infection. So in most chronic cases, it's not going to be elevated. It's going to be normal. Yep. VCA IgM is a long-term big marker that will probably be elevated for the rest of a person's life. And it will fluctuate a little higher, a little lower, depending what reactivation status you have. So this, even when you heal from EBV and you have a full functionality, that will not be normal. Which one? Say that one again. VCA IgG. Oh, IgG. Okay. Okay. Another big one that will be elevated for the rest of your life is EBNA IgG. Yeah. I haven't heard of that one. Is that the fourth one that no one can get ordered? <laughs> no, no. It's the third one, EBNA. EBNA IgG. So EBNA IgG and VCA IgG, they, they are high in, in that population and they will remain high. But like I said, depending on the status of EBV, they can go higher positive or lower positive. They fluctuate. So you can kind of see your status. And as I mentioned before, because they will stay, you know, they will be flagged for the rest of the person's life. They're not the best markers to just assess your EBV status because you may be functional. You may have a good life. You may be perfectly fine. They're still tagged and high. Sure. It just depends where they are. Sure. The, the fourth one, the most important, is early antigen. Early antigen will elevate with the first infection, but it will elevate with the reactivation. So EA for early antigen, IG, are you talking IgG? IgG. And that's why people get confused because it's IgG. So IgG, you would, you would uh, assume it's just past exposure. It's not in this case. It does show positive. It doesn't have to be high positive, but it doesn't, like the other two can be triple digits. Uh, this one can be just a few numbers higher than normal. You know, it doesn't elevate, it doesn't spike very high. That's what I'm saying. It can be, you know, if the normal is uh, less than nine, it, had, it can be 10. It can be very low positive to be positive. The other two can be, you know, 600, more than 600, even though the normal should be, let's say, less than nine or less than 19. People have triple digit oftentimes, and sometimes it's beyond the range, it's like more than 600. Right. I see that a lot. Well, then this, if they are that high, then that's a red flag because they don't have to be that high to be positive. So I want to go over those four labs just so that the listeners, yes, you should go to the website and look at the color-coded graph. But yes. <laughs> but she's talking about, and I, I can never remember abbreviation, so I'm just looking in your book. So the VCA, IgM, VCA, IgG, the early antigen, EA, IgG, and then the EBNA, IgG. Is that correct? Correct. So those are the four labs. And then for interpretation, refer to, to the graph. So thank you. But beyond beyond labs, I also get the gist that you're, you're looking at symptoms and other things as well Yeah. to, to decide if, if a patient has this. I actually found something interesting in your book too. You mentioned, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you said something like, if you have Epstein-Barr virus antibodies, that can lead to false positives on certain food sensitivity testing. Yes. So Dr. Vojdani did the study um, and I asked him and he says he replicated it and it's the same again, again, and again. Depending which antibody you look at, if you do a, an IgG food panel, 
Yeah. Some IgG foods will show false positive. Which ones are those? Oh, there's lots of them. There's lots of them. So it depends on the which of the antibodies you're looking at. But they they seem to be repeated. Maybe could be cashews or eggs. Yeah. So it's almost irrelevant. There is a list in the book. There's a, yeah. So the the trouble with this is you have to look at the the list of the food and say, all right, let's look at the five top ones because he lists in the you know in the severity, and uh, in the how high the number is. So let's look at the first top ones, five let's say of them, and see do I eat them all the time? Do I feel worse when I eat them? Right. Oh, have I been eating them all my life and I'm fine? It's like, I don't think that I react to these. So typically these are really not problematic. It's just the BV that makes the claim for false positive. Speaking of eggs, doesn't medical medium say something like eggs are a huge um, source of carrying the virus? There, it's it's complicated. I'm not quite sure exactly how yeah, it works. I barely remember. <laughs> there are some suspicions about how vaccinations are resourced um, from yeah. eggs yeah. and how this can complicate the immune system and impact it. Uh, but I do, uh, there was a study on IgE allergies related to EBV. I do always recommend taking eggs out. And I would say in 80%, it makes a difference in that population. Okay. So now that we've kind of talked about how likely common this virus is and how it can be a huge variable for chronic disease, of course, the listeners want to know what we can do to swing odds in their favor. So I want to talk about diet changes. And then I want to go back to kind of how EBV hijacks NF-kappa B and kind of talk about supplements that can help. But first, let's let's start with diet changes. Since you just mentioned taking eggs out can be helpful. So tell us, I know it's hard to just speak in blanket terms because every case is different, but what are some nutritional changes you recommend patients consider when, when you're treating them for EBV, chronic EBV? Yeah, I would say one of the things we haven't discussed, but it's pretty profound, is the issue of gluten. In functional medicine, of course, everybody teaches, take the gluten out. Yep. In the EBV community, studies have shown that EBV can actually trigger autoimmunity in people with uh, genes for celiac. So literally celiac can be turned on by the virus. Once I saw that study, I started to look closely at our community and see how that actually works in practice. And I can see that some people were perfectly fine with gluten before they got chronic EBV infection. And then, you know, they had to remove it. Either they figured it out or they had to be told. And then that made a big difference. So gluten really should not be in the diet. Dairy is so pro-inflammatory. Dairy is, there's no place, I believe there's no place for dairy in the healing process for a human <laughs> body. And not the way the dairy is produced as well. But for a person with EBV, that will really, that will really backfire. There's just, and I would say, I see it like 95%. So gluten, dairy, eggs, get them out. Get them out. Yeah. Get them out. <laughs> Sugar, I, I assume. Well, all that, yeah. But of course, the immune system is impacted by, by simple sugars. Uh, but where people start getting confused, is especially people that follow functional medicine, and this is a direction that alarms me personally as a clinical nutritionist, is relying on therapeutic diets. And one of them is paleo or autoimmune paleo. They are too restrictive and for the virus, they're not necessary. 
they will rob you of very important anti-inflammatory nutrients like molybdenum. They will backfire. And I've done a lot of damage control when people really restrict so much. And at certain point, these diets start backfiring and people have nowhere to go. Do you think short-term there is a place for a very restrictive diet and then... Short-term, but, but what is the reason for it to figure out why you are in that place? So in terms of EBV, where people stray is number one, that diet. Number two, ketogenic diet. It's too much fat for the liver. The liver is really taxed by the virus. Okay, okay. There's a lot more toxicity on the liver. And so it doesn't have the capacity to deal with ketogenic diet. It's very, very rare that I hear somebody thriving on ketogenic diet with EBV. It's almost unheard of. And I would really steer people away from it. Another thing that people do wrong is phobia of fruits. Fruits have the highest antioxidant load. And antioxidants incapacitate the virus. So I literally have to retrain people to have a... I have photographs of a big bowl of organic fruits, you know, so people can conceptualize. I can eat all these cherries at one go. Yes, you can eat all these cherries at one go. I can, you know, yesterday I ate uh, half of small watermelon, organic, of course. People have to have permission, literally, to enjoy fruits between meals. It's a great snack. No, it's just uh, there's so many antioxidants in it, and that's what the virus doesn't like. The more antioxidants you have, the stronger protection you have. These are simple things to to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very good. Of course, the curiosity in me now wants to know what foods are high in molybdenum that patients restrict? Uh, Grains and beans. Grains and beans. Okay. Legumes and grains. Yes. So gluten-free grains. Yes. Gluten-free grains. If you want to rebuild, you know, if, if you look at the science, if you look at physiology, if you want to rebuild and strengthen your immune system, you can drive it with gluten-free grains and legumes because they provide the substrate for your microbiome to create short-chain fatty acids. And short-chain fatty acids, what we don't know is that part of those feed your Treg cells. Literally, Treg's are your superstars of immune Navy support. Navy SEALs, I say that, yeah. yeah Navy SEALs, Navy SEALs I love yeah. it, yeah. yes. <laughs> Navy SEALs, exactly. They can downregulate autoimmune T cells. They can, they can do a lot of stuff but they need short-chain fatty acid. And this is what you know, our, our microbiome, our good bacteria produce this if they have dinner and what they eat is fiber. Legumes are a perfect example of fiber. And you can't eat enough vegetables to sustain yourself. On the paleo, you have to eat meat. Mm-hmm. Meat, vegetables, very little fruit, nothing really else. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's not sustainable. And so if people cannot tolerate gluten-free grains or legumes, they, they need help figuring out why the gut is so compromised. Because even if people react to lectins or glutenins, you can do a test. Cyrex is a great test. They look at particular legumes. You can have sensitivity to one legume, but not the other. So and people, people take a blanket, up, like, you know, shotgun approach and restrict a whole group. Maybe start with moon beans. They're very gentle on the gut. Yep. They don't have to be soaked. There's a delicious moon bean soup in the book <laughs> recipe. Yeah, you have a lot of great recipes in your book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm, they're delicious. So I would say, you know, open, open up a little bit and, you know, of course, work with a practitioner like yourself 
if you have a lot of intolerances to foods, because that, that needs to be addressed. You probably know vitamin D based on its relationship to seasonal affective disorder or SAD in the winter. And it's true, people experiencing SAD generally have low levels of the vitamin, but vitamin D isn't just beneficial during the cold, dark winter months. I've tested thousands of my patients' vitamin D levels over the years, and rarely do I find the patient doesn't need to supplement regardless of the time of year. Vitamin D is a steroid vitamin, a group of fat-soluble pro-hormones that are best known for the role they play in supporting bone health and aiding in the absorption of calcium and phosphate from the gastrointestinal tract. However, a growing body of research highlights its important role in supporting other body systems as well, including cardiovascular and blood sugar balance, as well as increasing musculoskeletal strength, neurologic and immune function, enabled by its ability to target over 200 different genes throughout the body. At the same time, deficiency and insufficiency of this important nutrient has reached epidemic proportions around the world, making the achievement of optimal levels extremely important to overall health. Known as the sunshine vitamin, yes, you can get some from the sun, but fish and milk are also decent sources as well, but if you've listened to this podcast, you know I'm not one to recommend dairy. So it's best to supplement, and it's best to have your levels tested to see how low you are and how high of a dose you need to take. We carry 1,000 and 5,000 international units of vitamin D3 with and without K2, as well as a 50,000 IU dose pack. Usually patients take that high dose pack short term. Use code vitamin D for 10% off these products at yourlongevityblueprint.com. Now let's get back to the show. Well, that's foundational. So above and beyond diet, let's go back to how EBV hijacks NF-kappa B, which is pro-inflammatory, so bad, right? So in your book, you say the higher the NF-kappa B, the higher, well, I think you said the higher the NF-kappa B, the more viral replication can be expected. Yes. So. Yes which we don't want. So let's right. talk about, I want to talk about antiviral supportive nutrients. So I want to talk about nutrients, botanicals, antioxidants, and maybe we, maybe we will go in that order. So let's talk about nutrients first, and then we'll go to herbs. <laughs> so basically, like I said, if you want to simplify it, the better nutritional status, the weaker the virus. We have the responsibility to provide the best nutrients. What does that mean? Investing in organics, and we talked about microbiome and uh, building the immune system through plant matter, through fiber. So more plant foods, whole foods, unadulterated whole plant foods. Yes. Whatever that is, plus fruits. If you do that, then, then you suddenly turn down the volume because you're, you're providing a lot more antioxidants in your diet. Dairy doesn't have antioxidants, really, except one. Meat is not high in antioxidants. The plants are. Uh, decreasing toxicity comes from fiber because you, you then poop. And the stool is how we engulf toxins, including toxins created by the virus. So simple things like that. So there's tons of nutrients. And the most important nutrients are those that multitask as antioxidants, notably selenium, for example. Yes, selenium. Yes. And you, you work with thyroid, so you know the value of selenium. You know the value for the liver, for glucosamine. I mean, it's a multitasker, and we're not getting enough of it because the soil is depleted. And so there's a lot of competition for it. Even 200 micrograms of selenium has been shown in some studies to have the capacity to turn off uh, the Hashimoto thyroiditis or immunity. Not that it happens all the time, but we drive it higher. We drive it all the way to 800 micrograms. And if you, if you go that route, you're going to see vitamin C, vitamin E, 
What about zinc? Obviously, zinc is popular in the zinc, news right now. Obviously, yeah. absolutely, zinc, vitamin D. And then we go into uh, special botanicals like licorice. I would say licorice is number one. We haven't talked about licorice a lot on the show, so let's talk about licorice. Yeah, licorice, I don't drive the protocol based on botanicals because they do not match what we need. So botanicals for me are adjunct. So the way I use botanicals is the simplest way is through drinking hot herbal teas with meals or between meals, because this way, you know, you have to drink something. You still have a little bit of modulation, but I, there's so much to do with supplements with EBV that herbs are not worth it, except licorice. You have a whole chapter on teas, I think, in your book. <laughs> Yes, yeah. because people you know, are familiar with uh, the tea and they can make a difference. Even just drinking licorice tea yeah. can make a difference. I didn't realize licorice had antiviral capabilities. I know that licorice can extend the half-life of cortisol, so it can be good for uh, um, the adrenals, good for energy, whatnot. But I didn't know it had antiviral components. Yes, it cannot be deglycerated. It has to be the real glycerized. It's not the gel. Yes, it has to have it because that's the antiviral. Yes, it has gamma interferon just like vitamin C. And these are the, the gamma interferon is a very powerful tool against the virus. And it is fabulous for adrenals. This, this community has low adrenal power. They are so wasted. It can perk you up. So yes, it is fabulous. People are afraid of licorice because of the blood pressure. And so you don't want to, you know, if it overstimulates you, you'll know, you just tone it down or start with a tea and don't take it in the evening because you'll be wide awake. It can increase blood pressure. So if somebody has high blood pressure, obviously it's not a good thing to take. And I would say if somebody has blood pressure that is high, hire a functional practitioner or a clinical nutritionist and, and stabilize your diet, change your lifestyle, bring the high blood pressure to normal. Yeah, right. <laughs> and you exactly. can enjoy the licorice. I like that you're driving home. You're not going to cure this virus by just taking herbs. Like that's not what you're saying. But but your book does mention that herbs can be supportive or adjunctive. So what are some other herbs that you like to use? In supplements, the only ones that I like to use, if there are co-infections, especially if you have H. pylori and gram-positive, gram-negative bacteria and fungus like candida, olive leaf extract. I was just going to ask you. Yeah. Yes. But olive leaf extract, I wouldn't do more than two months. And then I would retest all the other pathogens. And also you need probiotics because you'll be killing everything. It's pretty robust. Sure. But it turns off the virus too. And for some people, when we have resistance and we're not hitting the, the markers we want, I'll go for that because that's a heavy lifter. Heavy hitter. But it doesn't <laughs> have, yes, heavy hitter. It doesn't have the capacities that antioxidants do. It just kills. Sure. Uh, but what we're trying to do is not to kill so much, but to turn off the virus because we're providing so many tools that the virus is incapacitated and we're building the immune system, we're building the cells, we're providing nutrients. So nutrients that are antioxidants, like we discussed. Yeah, let's let's go back just, to antioxidants. They're, so they're, just, yeah, they're just better at delivering. So glutathione, you mentioned selenium is also a nutrient and an antioxidant. Yeah, so I don't use glutathione. And the reason why I'm not using glutathione is, is that I prefer to use building blocks so the body can assess sure. and use, make as much glutathione as it needs. Glutathione can be hard on people and it's expensive. But I, I use selenium and NAC. And acetylcysteine, yep. NAC is paramount 
And it also supports the liver. It's a multitask. It's an antioxidant. All the good things that we discussed. And so when you have that combo, then you start to turn down the virus. That's much more effective than just glutathione. Sure, sure. And then there's lysine. Ooh, we talk about that. Yeah, amino acid. Yeah. Yeah, NAC is an amino acid. Uh, lysine is an amino acid. So building blocks again, multitaskers. But it, you know, herpes, herpes viruses hate lysine. So you use a lot of lysine. Now, do you, so for the listeners, if you've ever had a cold sore, you may have taken lysine at some point to help treat that cold sore, which is from the herpes virus. Again, there are all different types of herpes viruses out there. I I have found in my patients who eat a lot of nuts, like high arginine diets, they'll deplete lysine and then they find themselves in that situation. So you want to make sure you're not eating too many foods that are too high in arginine, (laughs) but you, but I, I, so I, I do see the value in and using lysine. Do you primarily use lysine or do you ever use antiviral medications? Let me address the lysine and arginine. Okay. I understand that claim and it is correct. However, again, we don't have to restrict nuts. You can enjoy nuts if you have strong lysine. If you have strong lysine, yeah, okay. And so when when you have lysine supplement, when you you know you can enjoy foods and you you will not back you know you can have some nuts and you will not backfire. You will not have more reactivation because of that. What dose do you use of lysine usually? I actually feel that I play it pretty safe. <laughs> we could go higher, I imagine. We will go 1,500 twice a day or 1,000 three times a day. Uh, you could certainly go higher if you work with somebody. Sure. For, for This is more for chronic. Chronic, yeah. For chronic, yeah. Medication. Do you use medications in your patients? Antiviral medications? I am not a prescribing provider. I have three resources that are consistent. So I'll tell you, number one is medical literature. Medical literature consistently says antiviral medications have low efficacy. Number two, I am biased because people that I talk to are the people that have not responded to antiviral medication. That's why they're still seeking help, right? So my point of view is biased in terms of the community, because I talk to a lot of people, a lot of people reach out to me and I would say 95% will say medication did not help them. Number three, I train practitioners, medical doctors, DOs, functional practitioners. We just had a training uh, in February and we had that discussion. Medications, do you use them? Yes, I do. So what happens? Useless. Mm. They still use it in combination. So in functional medicine, the conundrum that practitioners have is, I use botanical medicine and sometimes antiviral medications and this and that. I hit them from all the sides. I'm not really moving the needle because they're not strategic. And medication doesn't do the trick, unfortunately. Interesting. Earlier in this interview, you've talked about the importance of detoxification. So how important is that? How important is detoxification to antiviral support and then treating EBV? The virus is very toxic, creates a lot of toxicity. So we talked about stools and pooping because that's how we engulf toxic debris from the system. When people try to kill EBV, when you kill pathogens, you know, that's why I don't use olive leaf extract as a first tool or loracidin. I don't like loracidin because they kill. Why, why not? When you kill. I, yeah, I mean, I use that in my patients. So sometimes we need to kill, don't we? Well, if you kill, if you start killing pathogens in a person that is already compromised, doesn't have strong adrenal function, doesn't have strong immune function, uh, have a lot of stress, they're basically so weak. 
there's too much. They don't have strong foundations. The house is not being built. They don't have the roof. Like you said, you know, you have to build them up. I build people up. I tell them we're building the bricks. Then we put the plumbing in. Then we put, you know, then they can handle it. When you start killing really fast, people get toxic and really sick. We call it a die off, right? Mm -hmm. It's not worth it. When you kill a virus, like any pathogen, sometimes the dead debris is more toxic than the live pathogen was. And it's really not worth it. People don't have the tools. They don't know how to eliminate it, you know, get it out of the system. It's not worth it. Uh, is, is good if you have H. pylori, candida, EBV, and gram-positive bacteria-like stuff, if, I, if I'm correct. So that's basically a potent coconut extract for the listeners. Right. That monolorin or lorisidin, yep. Guess what it doesn't do? It doesn't build you up. It's not selenium. It's not a building block. It doesn't do any of that. It doesn't provide any nutrient. It doesn't do anything. It only kills. When you have a patient in front of you and they have a budget for supplements and only one mouth to open, which supplements do you want to pick? I will not pick lorisidin unless somebody is on it and is thriving. I don't see that too often. Okay. As we enter flu season, I'm super excited to share that we are finally launching a comprehensive immune support product. It's called Immune Support, and it's a targeted blend of nutrients designed to provide a broad spectrum support to the body's immune reserves to keep you healthy and functioning at your best, despite the increased risk of seasonal illness during this time. The formulation includes quercetin, a powerful bioflavonoid that aids in supporting the immune system. Next, it includes vitamin C and N-acetylcysteine as potent antioxidants to promote respiratory function and support the function of quercetin. And lastly, it has vitamin D3 and zinc, which are important micronutrients needed to create a robust immune reserve. This blend includes all of the above, 600 milligrams of vitamin C, 2,500 IUs of D3, 25 milligrams of achelated zinc, 600 milligrams of N-acetylcysteine, and 250 milligrams of quercetin are in two capsules. And this product was formulated with those dosages in mind to be safe for those that are pregnant or lactating. If you want more, however, you can easily double the dose of the product, and it can also be combined with your daily complete multivitamin or my favorite product, mitochondrial complex. Research has shown that those taking this blend of nutrients fare much better with illnesses like viruses, making this the perfect time of year to stock up on immune support. In addition to being a fantastic option for anybody looking to boost immune reserves and support a healthy immune response, a bottle of immune support would fit perfect in your loved one's holiday stocking. Use code immune support for 10% off at yourlongevityblueprint.com. Now, back to the show. You also mentioned the importance of reducing EMFs, I think, because you said EMFs can drive up, I think you said it can drive up the virus. And I know we have talked on this podcast about how EMFs are bad for mold, but tell me how EMFs are bad for viruses. Interestingly, EMF is bad for mold. And so in the community, in our community with EBV that doesn't respond and, and cannot get out of the EBV cycle, mold is number one suspected culprit. Sure. When you have a combination of mold, Wi-Fi, and EBV, good luck to you. So we have to turn down the, the EBV definitely. There's also a, a little bit more spiritual aspect of the EBV community. At least that's what I see. There is a pattern uh, more empathetic people, we call them empaths. These are healers. These are people who have sixth sense. They are more sensitive to subtle energies. They may be in healing practices. They may not, because they may not even know. This community is more susceptible to Wi-Fi technology as well. 
And so I always ask people with ABV, how sensitive are you? And oftentimes I would say it's like 75% will say, yeah, I can't have too much online time or screen time. I get really sick from it. So there was an old study on early antigen being turned on with very conservative level of uh, Wi-Fi. It wasn't even, it was before Wi-Fi. It's an old, old study. But that study made me think. And so I started to kind of investigate and pay attention. And so that's the that's the pattern that I see in people. And so it's very, very simple things that you can do. Turn off the blue light box or bag your router in a mm-hmm. Faraday box. It's inexpensive. You know, find out if you have smart meter, if you have it, you know, box it if you can. Yep. Uh, get rid of it. You know, in some states, you don't have the rights. If in Pennsylvania, you don't have the light, but other states, you can request that they take it out and reinstall the analog. So, you know, just kind of being oriented. It's a little bit like hygiene. You have to brush your teeth twice a day. We have Wi-Fi technology all over us. We just have to be aware of it and turn it down a little. Absolutely. For the listeners. Oh, there you go. Yeah. (laughs) She's wearing blue light blocking glasses. For the listeners, I have two really long blogs on ways to reduce EMFs as well. So you have to check those out. So, Dr. Kynes, you have mentioned so many variables <laughs> that can contribute to, I mean, well, you've mentioned how the virus can contribute to chronic disease, and then you've mentioned what you help your patients do really rebuild, I would say, their their home per se. You, you help with those building blocks. Now, this may still seem a little discouraging to the listeners, and I hate even asking this question, but... How long do you feel like viruses take to treat? And then follow that up with all your amazing, you know, cases where patients have recovered. <laughs> so, so from my experience for the listeners, viruses are very difficult to treat. I mean, that's, that's how I have approached it with patients and that this isn't like you take a medication for a vaginal yeast infection and you're better in 24 hours. This is a long-term, I don't want to say fight, but this is something that patients have to manage. And, and so for many of my patients, it can take a very long time, but I'm interested to hear your response to that. How long do these viruses take to treat? And then tell us the good news that they can be. (laughs) Oh, that's very good news. That's why I I love what I do. Because actually, Dr. Flavin proved in her study, she had a case of 50 boys with enlarged spleen hospitalized. She was able to reverse engineer those spleens within 24, 48 hours. Wow. The virus is predictable. It's treatable and reversible and sometimes rapidly. And I'm quoting. Wow. I didn't know her. I remember I was I was ready to publish the book and I literally last day stumbled upon her study out of the blue. Guide universe, you know. I, I had to find it. And this is why I could make a claim in the book because I had a quote from medical literature. That there she is. And I looked at her protocol in the study and it was exactly what we discussed. It's exactly what I'm doing. And I had a medical doctor recently tell me, you know, my daughter had enlarged spleen. And because you had that study on your website, I followed it. And I was, we were able to reverse engineer it within 24 hours. Kids are fast. Kids respond fast. But for chronic... Well, right now there is a student who has a chronic, very chronic EBV. And uh, she's in her 20s, late 20s. And... After a couple of days, one week or two weeks, she thought she was cured. Wow. Of course she wasn't. Yeah. But she was able, she was able, I couldn't believe it. I went skating. And then I was able to deliver a lecture to uh, business communities. Like I, I didn't know I had the capacity. It's like, this is like normal. I'm normal again. 
But then, of course, she tanked because she didn't understand that she had to. She was not out of the woods. Yes, yes, she had to understand the reactivation factors and so on and so forth. Once we went through it, she was so empowered. Okay, I got it. I know what to do. So these stories, sometimes it's a couple of months, sometimes it's a couple of weeks. It just depends. If it's EBV, it's pretty straightforward and it's predictable. The problems are when there's co-infections, when there's mold, and people don't even know they have mold until a few months later they finally discover that there is, or the Wi-Fi technology is just so powerful and they they, they don't realize, or they're just co-infections like H. pylori. You know, there's just, just complications. The complications are where it gets you. Yes, if it's just EBD, it's straightforward. I, I like how you said that. Yeah, I should have rephrased. I think, yeah, the complex cases, because many times we're not just dealing with viruses, let's be real, we're dealing with a lot of things at once. <laughs> so those yeah. patients, they, they can take longer to treat, but we have to approach them the same way, lay the foundation, get the diet under control, reduce stress, help detox the body, and then we can add some of these supportive adjunctive nutrients and whatnot. So that is very promising. So I like hearing that. And through this podcast, we have referenced your website. So let's come back to the website. Tell us where listeners can find you and the quiz that you have on your website. EBVHelp.com, as simple as that. The only thing I haven't put there is the diet because uh, I haven't had time, but resources are there, researchers there, medical conditions uh, associated uh, with or caused by are there, and they're all referenced. So you can click on this and go to PubMed. Everything is there, different pages, the, you know, the grapho labs, how to interpret them. There's even direct-to-consumer lab because people sometimes spend two, three years looking for a doctor willing to test, literally, which shouldn't be. And then if they test, they do the three markers or two and not four, and you know how it goes. And people waste uh, years not knowing what they have. So there are direct-to-consumer labs that people need to know. They don't need a doctor. They can go and test and get the reports in email or online in 24 hours and know exactly what's going on. So we, awesome. I make sure that we have... Everything that people need, there's a link to my book, there's a quiz, and what else was the question? So the quiz, yeah, the quiz is to see if you have potentially have chronic EBV, right? Yes, because there's there's typical and atypical presentations, there's types of autoimmunity, there's types of cancer. I listed all of those four pages of check-off lists so you can track the, oh, I had rheumatoid, idiopathic rheumatoid arthritis when I was a teenager or a child and nobody knew why. Well, that's a classic presentation. Lupus is classic presentation. Low platelets or nosebleeds or mosquito bite sensitivity. These are medically studied presentations that are there. People are not aware. So there's just yeah. all kinds of things in this quiz when people can realize, you know, I didn't know these are, uh, there's a relationship between all these things that have happened to me. So it's really good to look at that. Fascinating. Yeah, I want to take that quiz because, yeah, yeah, you're a wealth of knowledge. Awesome. Well, tell me what your top longevity tip would be. My top longevity physiologically or more on a deeper level? Either <laughs> or both. <laughs> okay. Physiologically, have three meals, please. Don't skip breakfast. <laughs> Do you want to expand on that? Don't. <laughs> so many people are into intermittent fasting these days. And I've, I mean, breakfast has always been, I mean, I, I need to eat. I, I need to eat breakfast. I just, that's me. Yes. Please do not do intermittent fasting if you have chronic EBV. That is not appropriate. Just like ketogenic diet. I have to actually write three worse offenders when you have EBV. And it's going to be intermittent fasting, exercise, and ketogenic diet. <laughs> right there. 
<laughs> the adrenals are really um, in a lot of stress in that community if it's chronic and you need to provide you need to provide good carbs, good intervals. You need to nourish the adrenals. They thrive on good carbs. You need to have those meals. You so she's saying, skip. yeah, when you're restricting the foods, you're actually stressing your adrenals even more and you need the adrenals when you're trying to yeah, recover. So I, I, yes. I hear so you on that. I, I would say I, an, an average Joe that overeats, eats junk, goes to McDonald's, is overweight. The intermittent fasting is for those people but not for, for people with EBV. They need nourishment. They need steady meals. They need to calm down the brain. The brain needs glucose. It needs to be steady meals. And the lunch should be between noon and 1.30. Noon and 1.30. That's the time for lunch physiologically. This is where you eat the biggest meal. It has to be a solid meal. What was your second answer here? Though that's good. Now I want to hear your deeper longevity tip. The deeper longevity is following your heart and doing what you love. And in order to do that, you have to have a better way to love yourself and forgive and understand that you are loved enough, that you are enough, that you came to this planet with a gift. You have a zone of genius. It's something for service. It's something we can make this planet different, better. And people get stuck in the wrong jobs, wrong careers for wrong reasons. And if you just find a way to open the heart and love yourself just because of who you are, then you'll be more likely to do what you love. Just like what I did. You know, I love what I do. I just take one step and I listen. What am I supposed to do next? How am I supposed to serve? When you do what you love, you have joy. And joy is one of the most powerful healing tools you have in your life. And we need more joy. And it comes from love that you are enough. Love it. Great way to end the show. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for coming on today and bringing attention to something that just so many people suffer for from years or even decades because they don't get the right test and they don't know what to do with the results. So thank you also for providing the laundry list of symptoms and conditions that EBV can cause. And most importantly, thank you for training practitioners like myself and just sharing what the audience steps they can take to feel their best. So thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. My pleasure. Consumers also have a program online. They can jump in and do it too. We have everything. I'm trying to line everything up and we're also adding health coaches. We'll be training those. So I really want everyone to find their place in this journey and heal. You don't have to be ill for years. EBVhelp.com, right? Did I say that right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. You are a bunch of help. Thank you, Dr. Kind. My pleasure. Thank you. So interesting. I need to dive back into her book, The Epstein-Barr Virus Solution. It's jam-packed with helpful information. I'll post links in the show notes to three options for you to connect with Dr. Kynes. For anyone struggling with Epstein-Barr virus, she has a mini course as well as the Epstein-Barr virus recovery program. And for practitioners, she offers a workshop, which I plan to attend. Please check out those links and grab a copy of her book. Be sure to check out my book, Your Longevity Blueprint. And if you aren't much of a reader, you're in luck. You can now take my course online where I walk you through each chapter in the book. Plus, for a limited time, the course is 50% off. Check this offer out at yourlongevityblueprint.com and click the course tab. One of the biggest things you can do to support the show and help us reach more listeners is to subscribe to the show. Leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 
I do read all the reviews and would truly love to hear your suggestions for show topics, guests, and for how you're applying what you've learned on the show to create your own longevity blueprint. The podcast is produced by the team at Counterweight Creative. As always, thank you so much for listening and remember, wellness is waiting. The information provided in this podcast is educational. No information provided should be considered to be or used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always consult with your personal medical authority.